Hello and greetings from Singapore. I'm Tommy Koh and I was the President of the Third UN Conference on the Law of the Sea during its final two years, 1981 and 1982. My colleague Professor Jayakumar and I have also written um, a monograph on the negotiating process of the conference which is contained in Volume 1 of the commentary on the UN Convention published by the University of Virginia. What I'd like to do is to share with you some thoughts on the unique features of the negotiating process of the third UN conference on the law of the sea. I will begin with the fact that this is probably the longest treaty-making conference in UN history. The conference formally began in 1973 and it concluded in 1982, a period of um, nine years. And if we, included, if we include in this the period of the preparatory process, then I would say the conference took about 15 years altogether. <clears throat> Another unique feature of this conference was that the preparatory work was not entrusted to the International Law Commission or to another expert group or specialised group of limited size. This is extraordinary because most treaty-making conferences are prepared for by either the International Law Commission or an expert group. In this case, because of the universal interest in the subject, the preparatory work was entrusted to the UN Seabed Committee consisting of 91 member states. Worse, the meetings of the Seabed Committee were open-ended, which means that in practice, all member states of the UN could attend its meetings. And in the 1970s and 1980s, there were approximately 150 member states. So the UN Conference on the Law of the Sea began in 1973 without the benefit of a single preparatory text. This too is extraordinary because we would normally not begin a treaty adoption conference without a single negotiating text. We began without such a text. The, the reason, the wisdom at the time was that, that because of the complications of the agenda items and the competing interests involved, it was not possible to have a single negotiating text prepared in advance and that, that every aspect of the, the, the proposed treaty had to be negotiated by the conference itself. Something else that's unique and that's the negotiating process of the conference. The negotiating process of the conference was governed by a so-called gentleman's agreement adopted in November 1973. And what this gentleman's agreement essentially said is that all efforts would be made to arrive at decisions by consensus. And before anything is put to a vote, there would be a cooling period in which an extra effort would be made in order to find consensus. And only when all efforts at finding consensus have failed, would a proposal, a tax, a motion be put to the vote. So this is a unique feature of the decision-making process of the conference. 
I now want to talk about the wide scope of the agenda of the conference. There were altogether 25 items on the agenda. And each item was important to some country or some group of countries. Therefore, the 25 items on the agenda had different constituencies. And in order to arrive at an agreement, it was agreed that there would be no agreement on any item until there's an agreement on all items. In other words, we adopted what is called a package deal approach and that we, we respected the fact that the 25 items on our agenda were interrelated and that you may concede something on one item in the hope of gaining something on another item. And it is the grand totality of the pluses and minuses that would enable you to support the outcome. <clears throat> so this theory of um, interrelatedness was one of the reasons why the conference took so long to conclude. Another reason, of course, is the large number of participating states. Um, at, the, at the final session of the conference, I think there were about 164 member states. So the large number of states, the long agenda, the interrelatedness of the 25 items ensured that it would take many years to come to an agreement. The theory of the interrelatedness of the different items on the agenda also meant that this third UN conference, unlike the first conference and the second conference, would not be adopting separate conventions on separate topics. The first UN conference and the second conference adopted separate conventions on different topics, the territorial sea, the, the, the continental shelf, for example. But at the third UN conference, there was an agreement that no, since all items were interrelated, there would be only one convention. And this convention would be comprehensive, it would be holistic, it would be the first attempt to deal with ocean space as a totality. The, the next point I want to um, touch on is that in this conference, we saw for the first time the emergence of new interest groups which had never been formed before. For example, um, coastal states, because of their shared interests, they formed themselves into a group, group of coastal states. The landlocked countries and countries with rather small oceanic frontage or was locked in by their neighbours, such as Singapore, um, called the geographically disadvantaged states, they also formed themselves into a group, the group of landlocked and geographically disadvantaged states. And then you have certain Latin American countries that had very extensive claims to the territorial sea. Some countries um, still maintain a view that the territorial sea is 200 miles in breadth. So they form a little group of their own and they call themselves the territorialist group. Then the straight states, countries like um, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore um, and others that um, are coastal states through whose waters pass 
important international streets. They form themselves into a group called the Group of Street States. Then you have countries like Indonesia, Fiji, um, which Bahamas, which, which are archipelagic states, and they form a, a group called the Group of Archipelagic States. And you have countries like Canada, Australia, the United States, that have very broad continental shelves, and they form themselves into an interest group, which is called either the broad shelf states, or in short, the marginiers. And then you have other groups, the Oceania group, the European community, etc. The point I wanted to make here is that, that um, the third UN conference on the law of the sea saw the emergence for the first time of new interest groups that were formed specifically to enable countries to join forces to advance their common cause. The next point I want to make about the negotiating process was that an unprecedented degree of authority was invested in the conference leaders, in the president of the conference, in the chairman of the three main committees, in the other influential leaders such as the chairman of the drafting committee and the chairman of informal negotiating groups. And here let me say a word about the, these other conference leaders. In the third UN conference on the law of the sea, we had two parallel processes of negotiations, the formal process and the informal process. Very often, on a difficult issue, such as uh, straits, archipelagos, um, the status of the economic zone, etc. Progress was very slow in the formal negotiating process. So, certain conference leaders took it upon themselves to form an informal negotiating group. And let me just mention three such individuals. The late foreign minister of Mexico, Jorge Castaneda, formed a group to achieve a breakthrough on the status of the exclusive economic zone. Jens Evensen of Norway convened a group of juridical experts. Satya Nandan of Fiji co-convened a group with the United Kingdom to break the impasse on streets used for international navigation. And the success of the conference was due not just to the leaders of the formal negotiating process, but also to the leaders of these informal negotiating processes. And in particular, I wish to remember the invaluable contributions of colleagues and dear friends like Castaneda of Mexico, Evanson of Norway, London of Fiji. Next, I want to say something about the role of the Secretariat. The third UN conference on the law of the sea was um, blessed in many ways. It was blessed because we had a, uh, a small but excellent group of colleagues from all regions of the world, men, of good, men and women of goodwill, who wanted the conference to succeed. And it was this nucleus within the larger conference that spearheaded our, our progress. But we were also blessed in that we had an, a capable secretariat 
and, and the leaders of the conference worked closely with the Secretariat in the preparation of texts and proposals. <clears throat> and I want, as president of the conference, to acknowledge my own debt to Ambassador Zuleta and his co able colleagues. I want now to say a word about the collective leadership of the conference. I do not believe in um, playing solo. So when I was elected president of the conference in 1981, I decided that my style of leadership would be a collective leadership. And I invited the chairman of the three main committees, the chairman of the drafting committee, the rapporteur general, to join me in forming the collegium of the conference, the collective leadership of the conference. And I took them into my confidence. I met frequently with them, um, brainstormed with them on strategy, tested out ideas with them. And, and it was the collegium that helped me to provide leadership to the conference. I want now to talk about the role of non-governmental organizations. Another blessing that I received in uh, the third UN conference on the law of the sea was that I had an excellent group of uh, non-governmental organizations whose only interest is for the conference to succeed. And they formed themselves into a, a, a coalition. They call themselves the Neptune Group. I want to briefly say, what are the three major contributions they make to the conference? First, they brought independent experts from universities, think tanks, to meet with the delegates and to give us an impartial scientific view of some very complicated issues we were grappling with, whether it's on fisheries, whether it's on the, the continental shelf, whether it's on ocean currents, whether it's on scientific research. And we benefited a great deal from the impartial knowledge and insight of these independent experts brought to the conference by the NGOs. Second, the NGOs greatly helped colleagues from the developing countries to close the knowledge gap with their counterparts from the developed countries. It is of course normal that in the developing countries, our universities, our think tanks, our research institutions, uh, generally speaking, uh, not as um, good as those in the, in the West. I asked the NGOs to help me close that knowledge gap. And I would um, sometimes hold retreats in the American universities or in the, some places outside New York City and brought these experts to help developing countries learn more about the subjects so that they will be on par with the developed countries and in the negotiation. In that way, the NGOs helped me to level the playing field between the developed countries and the developing countries. The NGOs also afforded opportunities for us to meet outside New York in an informal setting where we could um, speak in our individual capacity, learn to trust each other, learn to give and take. And I remember many such retreats, some of which were held, for example, at Swarthmore University in, in Philadelphia, 
uh, or, or in Lake Mohong in, in upstate New York. <clears throat> Another contribution which NGOs made and which I wish to acknowledge is that the NGOs of the rich countries help to influence the domestic positions of their countries. And this is helpful to the conference because very often in, in the rich countries, the vested interests were not in favour of the compromises that had to be made in order to achieve consensus. So very often the NGOs in these rich countries, the United States and Europe, would um, write public positions, um, champion positions that, that um, would contest the positions of the vested interests. And this I also found to be very helpful. The next point I want to make is about a challenge which all intergovernmental conferences face, which is how to gradually reduce the size of the meetings. This is difficult, but it is not impossible. And um, an example I'd like to give is um, a negotiating group which I, I chaired on the financial terms of mining contracts, where I succeeded in um, proceeding gradually from a plenary of over 150 countries to an intermediate group of about 30 financial experts to finally a very small negotiating group in which the real breakthrough took place. The, the lesson or the wisdom which I've learned from this process, however, is that you must gain the confidence, confidence of your colleagues so that they trust you. You must um, be transparent and open and explain to the plenary why it is necessary to miniaturize the size of the negotiating group if we wish to make progress. And, um, and, and then ensure that whatever result is negotiated in a, in a small group is brought back to the parent bodies for discussion and endorsement. Next. I want to um, say a word about a very unique feature of the Third UN Conference on the Law of the Sea, and this is the Gentleman's Agreement on Decision-Making, which I touched upon earlier. But now I want to um, say a bit more. <clears throat> In this conference, I can uh, truthfully say that we were painstaking and relentless in the pursuit of compromise. And we tried to avoid taking a vote on any proposition, whether it's a treaty text, whether even a procedural proposal. Before taking a vote, the conference had to decide that all efforts at written agreement have been exhausted. And when we so decide, we then declare a cooling off period. And during this cooling off period, I as president will try, with the help of my general committee, to reach an agreement. And when even this fail, then I will report back to the conference to say, I've exhausted all efforts at achieving consensus and the voting will take place two days from today. In the 
in the course of the nine years of the third UN conference on the law of the sea, we took very few votes, very few votes. And uh, one of the very few votes was at the final session when a small number of colleagues um, requested that a recorded vote be taken on the draft convention. Um, I was very reluctant, but I had no choice in, in the face of this request and uh, put the draft convention to the vote in April 1982. And I was, of course, um, very gratified at the result, which was that 130 states voted in favour, four against, and 17 abstentions. I would now like to conclude and share with you some final reflections. First, I think the third UN conference on the law of the sea was the most complex and the most ambitious treaty-making conference in UN history. Second, in retrospect, I am not sure whether we were wise to have embarked upon the conference in 1973 without the advantage of having a single negotiating text to work from. Third, I think that the agenda of 25 items was very ambitious, but it was unavoidable because we wanted to deal with ocean space as a legal and ecological totality. We wanted to regulate every aspect of man's activities in ocean space. Fourth, I would say that um, our decision to adopt one convention and not several conventions was right. Because of the interrelatedness of the different items, because some items were more important to some countries than other items, this enabled us to make trade-offs between items and to bring them all together in a final compromise. I want to say also that the conference would not have succeeded if not for the fact that we were blessed with a good secretariat and with a number of conference leaders who guided both the formal processes of negotiations and the informal processes. And it was the combination of these two, the formal process and the informal process that eventually brought us to success. My final thought is that the third UN Conference on the Law of the Sea has um, vindicated the efficacy of the UN as a negotiating forum. I think the 1982 Convention on the Law of the Sea is a landmark treaty. It is a treaty that has stood the test of time. It has made a major contribution to law, to order, and to equity in the use of our oceans. Thank you very much.